This podcast is brought to you by AJ Bell and Shares Magazine. Shares Magazine is published by AJ Bell Media, part of AJ Bell. Hi, welcome back to Money and Markets. I'm Laura from AJ Bell and with me is Dan from Shares. Hi. So this week we're going to cover why challenger banks have failed to make their mark, the changes that will hit your finances next week, a potential breakup of the big tech giants, and why more people are getting mortgages into their retirement. So we're joined by Ian from Shares this week. Hi guys, thanks for having me back. So firstly, Dan, what's your, caught your eye in the markets this week? You've been looking at tech giants, right? I have, but first of all, I wanted to talk about Merlin Entertainments. So best known as owning Alton Towers and Legoland and theme parks. Um, now, we've talked about Merlin before on the podcast about how it's quite big in China these days and it's got um, a series of bloodless dungeons. Um, but now we want to talk about whales, not the land of not dragons. The country? No, not land of dragons, um, but those big things in the sea. So it, about seven years ago, it bought this business called um, Living and Leisure Australia. And within that, it owned an asset in Shanghai where you watch like a water show. It's got two beluga whales there. Um, now, it turned out this is one of the sort of most successful um, parts of its midway business. Um, mm-hmm. and, and these whales are going to be released into a sanctuary near Iceland next month. Um, and it's going to have a bit of an impact on earnings. And I'm not sure lots of people who follow this company would uh, know much about this. Um, it turns out about half of people who go to this attraction in Shanghai go specifically to see these whales. Uh, and now Merlin's sort of saying, well, you know, we've got some sort of plan to replace lost revenue, but um, there's going to be a hit this year to our earnings. So is it an animal welfare thing why they're no, well, moving they've been the plan- whales on? Yeah, so they've been planning for it ever since that um, they bought this business. It's, it's just finally uh, now going to happen. So um, It's like free willy. Yeah, yeah, it, it's very much like Have that. Have they seen the film? <laughs> yeah. That was my favourite film as a child. I've never seen it. The Is ending's it? amazing. Oh, come on, Did you man. cry? Uh, always. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, I mean, Merlin's not the only one that's been catching my eye in terms of um, potential impact to earnings. Uh, Majestic Wine has come out and said, uh, um, we're going to have this big transformational plan. I'm um, really sad about this. So they're rebranding as Naked Wines, yeah, aren't they? Yeah. I really I, like Majestic I like brand. Majestic. I, I don't understand. They should have had a consumer group of just Ian and I, and they wouldn't have yeah. made this decision. <laughs> yeah. So they're talking about potentially closing shops, or actually looking for a buyer for all their sort of physical shop business. Uh, it could become an online-only company, and, and they are changing the corporate name as well to Naked Wines, because this links back to something that they bought a few years ago. Um, and, and the idea of name changes is keeps cropping up in the news. Um, companies tend to do it, either when something's gone wrong in the past and they want people to forget about it, so they give themselves a new name, um, but as journalists, we never forget the bad things, so it perhaps <laughs> doesn't always work. Um, or, or it could be that they bought a business and they want to adopt that brand. Um, so you've had a couple recently, like Go Compare, the insurance comparison website, wants to change its name to GoCo. Which is ridiculous. Yeah, very bad. Um, Paddy Power, Betfair, wants to change its name to Flutter Entertainment. Oh, dear. Yeah. So, I mean, the, the, I, I put some of these name changes down simply to management madness. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I, I couldn't agree more. Or yeah. the branding department just being let rogue. <laughs> but for Majestic, I feel like their big kind of USP is that they have really knowledgeable people in store who will help you kind of decide what wine you want or what price point that you want and I can't quite see how that's going to translate online I don't know I've always thought 
but you know, an online wine business was risky anyway because the weight of a you know a box of wine is heavy, costly to send. What if it gets smashed? I don't know. But they seem to think it's uh, there is a future in it. Uh, I was reading some analyst notes saying it was always naked wines was always the favourite child within the business, so yeah. it was kind of inevitable it's going that way. And then you've also been looking at tech giants then? Yeah, so a couple of weeks ago, Elizabeth Warren um, in the US came out and said, like, if I if I become US president, um, first thing I want to do is to break up the tech companies. So we're talking about Google, Amazon, Facebook here. Um, and so she was sort of saying it was a bit like the American railroads uh, about 100 years ago where um, there was this situation of market dominance and it was sort of stifling competition. Um, so since then, lots of other people have come out and said, yes, yes, we, you know, I think this is a good thing. We should break up these companies, particularly people involved in the media industry. Um, so you can kind of make a sense. I can see where some people are coming from. So nearly 90% of all searches are done uh, on the Internet via Google. Um, so Google and Facebook account for about 58% of all um, digital advertising um, and in America if if someone you know, a third of all people when they want to go and buy something Amazon is the first place they go a to do it a third of people yeah well. so you, you know, Google's got this gigantic search engine and it's um, it, it has been sort of guilty of promoting its own services uh, and content over those of competitors. And when Facebook came and bought WhatsApp and Instagram, you could argue that actually it's just removed two competitors from the industry. Even even though this exists, yeah. it's the fact that it controls them now. So, But it might be helpful to understand. So Google, I know predominantly, obviously, as a search engine, but what are the other parts of its business that it's got that it could break off? Yeah, so so, so if we break up Google, we could, we could potentially say it could be the Gmail, which is the email service. Um, it's got Google Drive, so that's like you're, you're storing your information. Um, it's got the Maps part of the business, which is it's very valuable. Um, it's got the Android operating system, and it's got this search advertising. So you know, Google's actually, and there's probably even more, more parts to it as well if you wanted to, to break them up and I guess Facebook you just split off Instagram WhatsApp um, Amazon's an interesting one isn't it because everyone kind of knows it as the only as the online shopping portal but yeah no, no Amazon is really interesting you've got AWS which is like this sequel well, not secret part. If you, if you follow the company well, you'll know it. But for, for the average person on the street, they may not be aware of it, that they own a business called AWS. So it's it provides sort of, um, service space for companies. So, you know, I work for Shares Magazine. Our website is it ultimately is, is sort of run and backed up by AWS. And there's masses and masses of companies around the world use this service. Um, it makes loads and loads of money. Um, it, ca- it generates masses of cash and is really fast growing. So if you go back to the fourth quarter 2018, um, revenue jumped by 45% in a quarter mm. to, to $7.43 billion. Um, and, it, and it counts for nearly 60% of Amazon's overall um, income. I mean, it, it really is this great business. So you, the, the natural thing would be to split that from the shopping service. So what's actually the benefit of, of splitting these companies up? Why is there kind of political appetite to do it? Well, it, it, it's it's to do with it. They, they become very dominant. Um, and the argument is that there's not enough competition, perhaps because people or startup companies don't think that they can um, sort of disrupt them or, or you know have any heavy impact because everyone is using a select few companies for so many things. So Which is probably fair because if you think about 
a new business launching, you're not going to say, oh, I'm going to launch the next Amazon and be a challenger to that as a startup. That would feel like quite an uphill struggle, wouldn't yeah. it? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it would be very bold, wouldn't it? But it's, um, it, it is there. So someone like News Corp Australia has come out and said that um, they want the search bit separated from Google. So you know, they're, they're arguing that Google's can tracking people's online behavior and it collects all this data and it gives it an unfair competitive advantage but actually if you broke up this sort of ecosystem um, you could potentially have more com- competition for search engines for um, mobile operating systems and internet browsers and the supply of digital advertising um, so barack obama's former chief economic advisor jason Furman, uh recently received uh, published a report which talked about digital competition in the UK. Um, and he was warning of sort of bullying tactics by market leaders that was limiting competition. And of course, if you, if you go back to UK, Chancellor Philip Hammond last October was saying, well, we're going to introduce this digital sales tax. We've got all these big, big companies that do make a profit in the UK, but we want them to pay their fair share of, um, yeah, fair share of their taxes. So there's, there's lots of sort of political pressure at the moment um, in terms of what, you know, what's going on. Yes, I mean, that was the idea of that, obviously, was in his um, budget, wasn't it, about yeah. helping the high street. I mean, who else is it meant to help? Is it how? I don't, I'm not entirely sure that a load of different search engines is going to be better for consumers. I don't know when they all just end up showing the same results. I'm not sure. I mean, so, uh, we, we sat through um, a presentation internally uh, a couple of weeks ago. We we're talking about sort of search engines, and this guy was d- running it was saying, um, you know, Google's got about 85 or, or 90 percent of um, all searches, but actually mm. the, the, the next one down is Bing. Um, and he said, actually, <laughs> is know, Bing still a thing? Yeah. <laughs> and so, but he says, like, can you guess what it is that people are the main thing that people search for <gasps> on Bing? Do they search for Google? Yeah. <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> yeah. So, so you know, it's like, oh my god! I, I say I've got a work computer and I've got Bing is automatically installed in it, and I can't yeah. get rid of it. It's like, well, the first thing I want to do is actually use a search engine that gives me the results mm. I want. Maybe this could be the time for Ask Jeeves to come back. <laughs> it's time <laughs> no, 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 to shine. <laughs> so these these companies have already been told off a lot. Anyway, so Google in particular has had quite a lot of fines. Uh, you know, more recently for abusing its dominant digital advertising position but actually the eu's antitrust commissioner has actually come out and sort of saying well if we break up these companies we would actually need a strong case that it would produce better results for consumers in the yeah, marketplace yeah. so actually you, know, you have to think well, these are businesses that have done well they've invested the money that they've earned back into their business and they've been really good at innovation and that's why people like to use them so actually have they done anything bad no so th- th- you know th- there's there's multiple ways of looking at this so but you know is it really a free market if if a government comes along and says uh, i'm sorry i'm going to tell you what to do now um even though originally governments were there to try to encourage businesses to grow you know, you know, they've, they've come from nothing all of them have come from nothing so you know this argument is is quite interesting and it can go on going on but i just thought I'd make just one more point on it is that um a fund manager did say to me the other day that he thinks that Amazon might already be working on a split anyway, um, even without um, you know, these sort of uh, the threats from pre- presidential hopefuls uh, for the next year's election. Because actually, it could benefit. He argues that it could benefit shareholders if AWS was split from the e-commerce side of things. And it's a bit like when 
eBay split uh, a while ago. So everyone thought, okay, well, you know, I know the auction brand. Is that the one if I was investing it, I should stick with? But actually the payment business, PayPal, that used to be part of eBay turned out to be the better part of it. So this fund manager was saying, well, the public may think, okay, I'll go with the Amazon e-commerce business. I know that's where everyone shops, but but really it's the AWS he thinks is the better side of things. But AWS kind of pays the bills and helps Amazon be able to sell things at a low margin. So if it was a standalone e-commerce business with low margins, would actually its innovation be threatened by this split? Anyway, it, it's it's a fascinating topic. Yeah, it's really interesting. Yeah. I feel like we could do a whole podcast yeah. just on breaking up Amazon. So we've been talking about tax year-end and ISA season quite a lot on the podcast. But Laura, you've been looking at the next tax year and all the, the potential changes to the rules and how they could hit your finances. So is this good or bad news for us? It's a bit of both. Um, so a lot of these things were things that were announced in previous budgets. Um, but the new tax year starts on April the 6th and that's when a lot of the changes come in so these are things to changes to income tax allowances or changes to how your pension works Um, so I'll pick out a few Uh, the personal allowance which is the amount that everyone can earn before they pay tax is increasing so that effectively gives everyone a pay rise Uh, so that's going up from 11 (laughs) It was a very small share, but <laughs> I'll take it. <laughs> so it's going up from eleven thousand eight hundred and fifty pounds to twelve and a half grand um, from April six, which is good. And then it also means that the higher rate tax ban, so the point at which you start paying forty percent tax, um, is increasing to fifty thousand pounds. So that's good news. Yeah. Um, I'm going to lead with good news because you know that's always nice. Um, some investors and savers will get a boost as well. So the junior ISA allowance will increase uh, to. £4,368. Doesn't sound much, does it? Not a round number. No. Yeah, how'd they come up with that? Well, I'm glad you asked, Ian. (laughs) It's £364 a month. So it has to be divisible by 12 for those that put monthly amounts in. Um, And the amount of capital gains that you can make before you get charged capital gains tax is going up to £12,000 from 11700 And there's also an increase in your pension allowance. On the... Neither positive nor negative side, depends how you view it, auto-enrolment contributions are going up. So this is the government's big pension reforms plan. So they're putting up the minimum amount that both employees and employers can put in. So the amount that your employer puts in will increase from 2% to 3%, but the amount that the employee puts in will rise from 3% to 5%. So I guess it's it's good news because there's money going to pension, but I presume for people on sort of lower incomes they will feel that won't they you know the extra contribution it means that they've got less money to take home exactly so it's kind of less money now what's the phrase jam today or jam tomorrow so you're getting less jam today more jam tomorrow yeah um but yeah so the average person earning about thirty thousand pounds their contributions will go up from 575 pounds to 955 so that is actually quite a lot wow that is quite a lot isn't it um other things that are happening uh the student loan threshold is increasing so for graduate listeners those who started university in 2012 or afterwards will see that the amount the kind of threshold before they start repaying their loan rise from 25,000 to 25,725 pounds <laughs> slight increase yeah not a lot is it's it? not are, are they save... still charging six percent uh 
Yeah, well, that is a very complicated topic, Ian, which we got in trouble for before, yeah. so I'm not going to yeah, give you okay. a simple answer fine, to it. Fine. Some people are, yes, being charged mm. more than 6%. Mm. Some people are not. Uh, but yeah, so that's the limit above which you pay 9% of your salary to repay your student loan. Um, there's a couple of other changes. Changes for landlords, so the tax breaks that the government's been gradually removing will ratchet down again um, from April. Uh, and one of the other changes is there's a new inheritance tax break, which is probably worthy of a podcast all on its own, which is the residence nil rate band. But anyway, that's increasing, which means that you can leave more of your state without hitting inheritance tax. I think those are the big ones. Um, there's an article um, on Shares magazine that summarises all of these and looks at the kind of financial impact on you if you're affected by them. Okay, so on to the world of banking. So we've had a number of big launches in recent years for new names that have been promising better rates and services. Um, but I wonder, have they actually been making a big dent in the, sort of the bigger world of traditional high street lenders? So Ian, I know you've been looking at it. This you know, Challenger banks, are they successful or not? Well, it's interesting, Dan, as you say, you every, everywhere you go now, you'll see adverts for Challenger banks. And uh, they originated after the financial crisis. Um, a decade ago, during the crisis, we discovered that the big high street banks, uh, A, were quite poorly run, two of them had to be bailed out by the government, and B, were giving customers a really poor service. Um, and there was mis-selling, there was mis-selling of pensions, there was mis-selling of mortgages, PPI, obviously, most famously. Um, and the idea was that the challenger banks, if you could kind of level the playing field a bit, um, create a genuinely competitive market for savings and loans. And most importantly, actually, just give the customer a better experience. So has it been a success? Well, chief executive of Aldermore, the founder and chief exec, uh, a chap called Phil, Philip Monks, um, has said no. He said, if you look at the whole Challenger Bank experiment, the aim was to create diversification, and it hasn't happened. So, who, I mean, who before we sort of get further into the topic... Can you sort of give some examples of who are the challenger banks? Yeah, um, the challenger banks are a combination of new firms that have set up. So the idea was you'd have all these new uh, banks with none of the baggage, none of the legacy issues of the old banks. They're also, you know, using really smart technology, mobile banking. They don't have branches, so their costs are very low. And because their costs are low, they can offer you really attractive rates. And it's quite common to see these new challenges at the top of the tables in the, the weekend money sections and so on. Yeah, when I'm looking at savings rates, these challenger banks tend to or usually yeah. come up top. I guess Metro Bank is probably the biggest that's known as a challenger bank, but you've got other things like SOPA. You've even got the weird situation of Marcus, which is from Goldman Sachs, Goldman. is kind of seen as a challenger bank, even though it comes from a very old school, big financial institution. Yeah, that's it. You've got this interesting combination. As you say, you've got... Uh, the Zopas, you've got the Metros, you've got Monzo, Revolut, Atom Bank. Then you've also got some old school firms like um, Goldman. Uh, you've got uh, Clydesdale and Yorkshire Bank Group, who bought Virgin Money, um, which was kind of one of, I suppose, along with people like Aldermore, was one of the first proper challengers, if you like. Uh, you've got Co-op Bank, uh, and you've got the traditional building societies like TSB and Nationwide. So these are all considered to be challengers to the big high street banks. So the chief exec of Aldermore, going back to your original point, mm. says that there hasn't been more diversification. But from my point of view, there's lots more brands out there willing to take your money. There's maybe a little bit more competition in the market because you've had entrance from people like Marcus offering mm -hmm. market beating rates. So I guess my initial impression would be that 
there has been a bit of a kind of boost to the market and there's more options. And there has. I mean, they've taken, according to Accenture, uh, which is the consultancy, uh, they've taken about 14% of the market, but they've had 10 years to do it. Yeah. And what he's saying is it's not, you know, the big issue for these guys, I think, is scale. Um, it's very, very difficult to compete with the big banks and their balance sheets. So when you look at the amount of money that, um, you know, even the most successful, you mentioned Metro, you know, even the most successful of these, I think they've lent just over 14 billions because what we're talking of 14 billion pounds to uh, customers and businesses, the idea was as well as attracting more retail customers, they would lend more to small businesses. And I think that's what he's talking about when he's saying it hasn't really worked. They've got market share, they've got these great apps and so on for retail customers, but they're just not lending out to businesses as much as they should be. And to give you some idea of the scale, you've got um, Metro, who've been the most successful, you know, they've done 14, they've lent 14 billion pounds, uh, all the way down to Atom, which has lent 1.2 billion pounds. And that's a good start, if you're a, a small challenger bank, but you know, Barclays loan book is 190 billion pounds. Uh, Royal Bank of Scotland's 300 billion, and Lloyd's is nearly 450 billion. Um, Do know, the challenger banks themselves see this as a measure of success? Do they see lending to business being an important part of it, or are they really just targeting that more retail consumer side of the business? I think they've targeted the retail consumer side because if you just take in savings, they do do banking accounts, but it's generally not lending. It's put all your you know company cash flows into our accounts. Of course, that gives them cheap funding. So retail deposits, because their costs are low, they can offer decent rates, they can attract people. But the government wanted them to lend money to businesses, small businesses. And it's just not happening on the scale that it needs to. Um, I think it's something like Atom is quite new, isn't it, in terms of lending? It is. I mean, I I use them for saving. And it's just like I've never seen and never experienced anything like it in terms of ease of use. Mm. Um, You know, like I say, you don't have to go into a branch to do it all. And and it was like, wow, this is brilliant. I wish they did more. And I think lots of people are thinking this, aren't they? They are great, but they don't have the scale really to compete with the big guys. And one clear indication of that was just this month, you have one savings bank and Charter Court Financial Services saying they were going to get together. Now, these are two of the most efficient operators with the best margins in the business. Altogether, they've got about £15 billion of lending, so slightly bigger than Metro. And the press release, the number one reason they're getting together is if they're going to go after more growth, they need greater scale and resources, effectively. Um, so so just to give you an idea of the scale of the, uh, the big banks' power to uh, dominate this market, we talked about uh, one savings bank and charter court have got 15 billion of lending, Metro Bank has 14 billion of lending, just this week, Barclays has announced that it's going to open up a new fund to lend to British companies struggling with Brexit. No honker, I'm afraid. <laughs> but uh, it's a £14.7 billion fund. They can just turn that on at the flick of a switch. Yeah. And it shows you how difficult it is for these other guys. I mean, challenges haven't really taken off elsewhere in Europe either. Probably the, one of the most open markets is Sweden, and you've got... Uh, quite a few challenger banks in Sweden, but they're just not making any headway. They're, they're quite good in small, non-mass market products. I think one of the big things just kind of taps into the general 
apathy of people to move and I think it takes you say that it's been a decade since these challenger banks started to launch but investor attitudes take so much or kind of consumer attitudes take so much longer to change and people are nervous about moving to a brand that they don't know of or a fledgling brand but also people just don't move we see that again and again Mm. across personal Mm. finances whether it's your bank your energy company your internet supplier so I guess it it's almost a bit like a generational shift so there's a kind of cult following around brands like Monzo now and you almost can't see those people that are so avid about Monzo switching back to one of the big brand banks so maybe it's something where once a generation's gone through the system they'll have much more of a foothold. I think you're absolutely right absolutely right there Laura. And so finally Laura you've noticed an interesting and maybe worrying trend in the mortgage market what's going on? Yeah, so some new figures out from Money Facts this week um, showed that there's been a big surge in the number of mortgages that have a 40-year term to them. So um, more than half of residential mortgages have a available maximum term of 40 years, which is up from about 36% five years ago. And at the same time, the number with shorter terms has been shrinking. So what this basically is showing us is that more people are getting longer terms on their mortgage because the longer you spread the borrowing over, the lower your monthly repayments are. So it makes mortgages more affordable on a month-by-month basis, Um, which initially you might think, okay, well, that doesn't sound too bad. But actually, when you compound up the interest that's being charged on these mortgages, if you extend your term by 5, 10, 15 years, the amount extra you're paying is quite alarming. This obviously taps into stuff that we talk about on the podcast all the time Mm. in terms of the affordability of mortgages, people having lower Mm. deposits, people not having so much disposable income to get on the house ladder but I thought it was really interesting trend um, that is likely costing people a lot more and that, that makes it more difficult for people to pay it down early doesn't it which is one of the things that you've always talked about is how to save money in the long run is pay down your debts earlier and, uh, and avoid this compounding problem yeah exactly and what we don't know at the moment is a, a lot of people might enter into these long mortgage terms for maybe their first or second mortgage and think when I move house further down the line I will cut down the term or I'll save money and overpay on my mortgage what we don't know is how many people are actually doing that mm. how many people when they come to mm. remortgage are cutting down that term or are overpaying and paying off a chunk of equity and I guess it puts more pressure you know you're going to be working for, for longer aren't you yeah. unless you unless yeah. you're taking that out in your early 20s and it's like um you know, someone in there, or w- will a bank even give you a forty-year mortgage if you're in your thirties? I don't. You know, it's, it's yeah, they have cutoffs in terms of the maximum age that they're willing to lend to. But we have seen lenders kind of eke out those upper age limits over the past few years. But yeah, if you look at the average statistics of when you buy your first home, you're now likely to be in kind of your mid-thirties. If you're then taking out a forty-year mortgage, that's going to take you into your mid-seventies. Which I know we're all working longer, but is probably quite an alarming prospect. Yeah, I don't think we, we don't want to work that long, do we? Surely, no. <laughs> Just to pay our mortgage Just to pay the mortgage, well. no. Yeah. Yeah. But I think that's everything that we've got for this week. But thanks a lot for listening. And as ever, you can send any thoughts or ideas you have to podcast at ajbell.co.uk. See you next week. Thanks. Thanks. Bye. Before you go, please remember this podcast is for educational purposes and isn't telling you whether certain investments are suitable or not. If you want help, go see a qualified financial advisor. The podcast talks about various money issues. Just don't forget that the value of investments can change and you can lose money as well as make it. You should also recognise that how an investment performed in the past may not be the same as how it behaves in the future and that tax rules apply.